Welcome to Run This World. My name is Nicole DeBoom. I'm a former pro athlete turned entrepreneur. Each week, I'll bring you insights and inspiration from some of the world's greatest visionaries who will help you run your world in ways that you didn't even realize were possible. All in the framework of the amount of time it takes for the average person to run a 5K. That's 36 minutes and 38 seconds, give or take a mile. We often go long, so get ready. Thank you for spending some time with me today. Now let's get this workout started. Welcome to episode 10 of Run This World. Today I have Robin O'Brien on the show. Robin is a former finance analyst who became a food activist after watching her toddler experience a life-threatening allergic reaction. Uh, After that, she dug into the big question, what is the cause of all the food allergies we're experiencing today? Because when we were kids, they didn't exist. And what she uncovered really shook up the food industry and led to her book, The Unhealthy Truth. Uh, Robin is basically a food activist at this point in her life. She's an amazing woman. Today, we talk about what happens when your kid has a food allergy outbreak, what you can do to clean up your kitchen, Two important muscles, fear versus courage, GMOs and hormones in our food, and what the mainstream grocery industry is doing to get in on the clean food game. I know you're excited. So with that, let's meet Robin. All right, everyone. I'm so excited. I'm actually sitting here in Boulder face-to-face with what happens to be my neighbor, who I didn't even know was my neighbor, our amazing guest today, Robin O'Brien. It's so much fun to be here. I love it. So I met Robin, I met you in what, 2005? Yeah, it's like 10 years ago or something. We could just look at this award. The 2006 Boulder County Business Report Innovation Quotient Award. IQ Award. So I won an IQ Award back then for skirt sports, but Robin, you won an award for what you were working on at the time. That's right. You won it for your these incredible outfits you were putting together to empower women. And then I was putting together packets of information, same thing, <laughs> to empower these families. And so I had started this website and this little organization called Allergy Kids, and it had totally been born out of necessity, a lot like you, you know? So it was just that inspiration hits. And it had been when our fourth child was diagnosed with food allergies. And all of a sudden, you know, here I was, I'd done all this academic stuff, I'd done all this corporate stuff, I'd done all this finance stuff, living in Boulder, you know, and suddenly I'm caught totally flat-footed on this whole food allergy epidemic. And as I started pulling information, I thought, there's a lot of information here that should just be shared with the world. And I know that parents are all trying to wrap their heads around this. Teachers are, you know, our Sunday school was trying to figure it out. Everybody was sort of like, where did this come from? Why do so many kids have food allergies? What's going on? And so it was really to try to distill that down. So, um, you know, it was never in a million years, something that I thought I would be doing. And, um, I never in a million years would have pegged myself for it, but it was definitely something that, spoke to me in a really powerful way. And it was something that I couldn't turn my back on personally because of our youngest child. But then when I realized how many families were impacted by this, I I just couldn't turn my back. So, okay. So tell us a little more about Allergy Kids. You wrote a book. Right. So, you know, it started, I just, um, our youngest child, our fourth child was diagnosed with food allergies. And I started pulling data on the health of the American children to really capture data on food allergies. And the data on food allergies is just crazy now. And, you know, you think about like when we were kids, you didn't know anybody. 
that had a food no. allergy. I mean, PB&J wasn't a loaded weapon. A carton of milk wasn't a loaded weapon. Like, we all just went to school. We all had the same lunches. We totally. pretty much had the same Thanksgiving meals. There weren't all these special diets or anything oh, else going on. Wonder Bread, bologna. Totally. Pimento. Um, yeah. yeah. I, I ate a lot of fluffer nutters. Do you remember the marshmallow fluff and peanut butter yeah, sandwiches totally. on Wonder Bread? Yeah. Totally. So, you know, we all ate like that. Yeah. And we didn't have all these allergies. Mm. So, here I was with this child that was allergic to food, and I'm thinking... How do I do my job as a mom? You know, like, what am I supposed to feed her? Her allergies at the time were egg. And then I had these three older kids, and I said, how do I how do I keep them from accidentally hurting her? Because they were little. Oh, you know, we'd had four yeah. kids in five years. And so I, I just went into this data dive. And today, it's one in 13 kids has a food allergy, which is pretty much two kids in every single classroom. And a food allergic reaction, a life-threatening reaction to food, send somebody to the emergency room once every six minutes. I mean, that is crazy. So EpiPen, wow. EpiPen is sort of like this backstop there, you know? And it's like, if you have a child with food allergies, you carry around this EpiPen in case they accidentally ingest something. Well, EpiPen is a billion dollar brand. So it's, this is really happening. It's really a problem. It's not anything I ever really thought I would wow. be talking about. But as I unearthed this data, I thought, why isn't anybody talking about this? Because we were talking about the obesity epidemic. And we were talking mm -hmm. about diabetes. And yet I was looking mm -hmm. at these numbers on food allergies and thinking, why aren't we talking about this? And so I started reaching out to different groups and different organizations and encountered a ton of resistance 10 years ago, which is when I started Allergy Kids. And I just thought, I've just got to help get this information out. And as that started, um, the press picked it up. You know, I had a lot of interest from national media really early on. I think they loved the story that it was a mom of four. It was born out of so much love. And then I had this ability to just share the data because I came out of the finance world. So, you know, I could just kind of interpret the data. And CNN ran an interview on Father's Day. All this big stuff happened really fast. And it sort of thrust me onto this stage that I didn't really want to be on. You know, a finance person likes to be behind the computer, not in front of it. And so I was really in those early years, it was a lot of um, growing pains because all of a sudden I had to get out of this comfort zone. I had to become a voice for this thing. A lot of people were asking me to talk or to present and I was, you know, starting to do all of that. I had no idea what I was doing, you know, and so I had always done really well academically, loved being in Boulder because I'd always, you know, I ran track, I played soccer, I played field hockey growing up. So I had that discipline and I had to learn how to channel it into this, mm -hmm. you know? And so that's what I started to do. And so then in 2008, a story ran in the New York Times and I was approached by all the major publishing houses. And I flew to New York that year, it was Valentine's Day. And they, these houses wanted a book. And you know, like a, a book is like a whole different business project. And I had no idea at the time mm -hmm. what that was gonna entail. And with four little kids at home, that was just something that took over so hard and fast. And we produced the book, The Unhealthy Truth. Random House published it in the spring of 2009, right at Mother's Day. And naively, I thought I was done. I thought, okay, you know, I've taken all this research. I've, I've put it all together in this book, this story that's happened to me, the way the food industry was threatened by me, you know, what I had to do to sort of keep going and get through it. And I put it all together in the book and the data was in the book and I published the book and I just thought, okay, I'm gonna go back to what I thought I was gonna do, which was finance and kind of retreat back into that world. And there was this enormous pull to keep going. And the more that I got in front of people, the more that I could, I could feel what our families were going through. And what I was seeing was, as I had unearthed that data on food allergies, 
you don't just get food allergy data. You really start to see how pervasive diabetes is in families and how pervasive things like cancer are. And the president's cancer panel was saying one in two men and one in three women are now expected to get cancer. And so I'm thinking, like, oh. what are we waiting for? If it's one in two men, are we waiting for one in one? Like, why, why aren't we uh-huh. talking about this? And so there was this incredible pull to continue the advocacy work, to be way outside of my comfort zone, to really say, you know, this really is an issue and what can we be doing about it? And what it kept coming down to was food, you know? And I was looking at, you know, the food system and I had covered the food industry when I had been a financial analyst, but it had just been purely academic, purely data, no heart, no emotion. And I was turning back to the food industry and I was looking at it and I was thinking, you know, I know we took out all the real stuff and put in all this artificial stuff, to drive profitability, but how is that impacting us? And what exactly has changed? And if a food allergy is when your body sees food as foreign, how much foreign stuff's in our food? And so it's sort of like Wizard mm-hmm. of Oz. You're like pulling back that curtain and you're just yeah. like, oh my gosh, mm-hmm. so much has changed. And we were talking earlier, like if you're from Chicago, you know, and I'm from Houston and your husband's from Iowa, you know, it's like we just all grew up eating those really basic foods and you just assumed that there had been all the background checking, everything was safe as it went onto the shelf. And what I learned was that in the last 20 years, there have been so many changes implemented across our food system so quickly and that the U.S. has always been sort of the first to embrace them and other countries are like, they just kind of go, well, we're going to exercise precaution. We're either not going to introduce these things right away or we're going to label them, you know? And so we had just taken this totally different approach. And if you were just to look at the health of the American children today, you would say something in this approach is not working. Yep. It's true. Wow. Oh my gosh. What a freaking whirlwind. It really, I mean, it was, and I think, you know, there, I say all the time, I, I am so grateful that we live in this town and this was my home base for this work because the community was ahead of me, you know? Mm -hmm. And when we first moved to Boulder 16 years ago, I thought, wow, all these people are totally into food and they have all this time on their hands, you know, and you're meeting all these triathletes and you're like, holy cow, this is huge. And it just struck me as like, that must be nice to have time for this hobby. And then the more I learned, the more that I learned, I was like, wow, these people are actually way ahead of the program, you know? And they've studied this in a very Mm. academic way and in a very data-driven way. And, you know, one of the greatest people in the early years of the work was Dave Scott, this six-time Ironman. And his resources and what he had done mathematically with food and nutrition to win those races, you know, he looked at it Mm -hmm. through a totally different lens. Mm -hmm. And so as I was starting to look at it through a different lens, he really opened his network to me. And he had these amazing scientists that he knew, these researchers that he knew. And all of a sudden, these guys were kind of putting this information into my hands that was foundational to how I could rethink, you know, presenting this information. And so as I continued to, um, you know, I was given an opportunity to do these TED Talks. And I I mean, the, the introvert in me, was absolutely terrified, but the love in me was so much bigger than that introvert. And to realize that we had just introduced a food system that hadn't had all the checks and balances in it yet. And we had introduced it in a way that had an exercise precaution. And we were really the only country doing this. Mm -hmm. And so as I looked at like all our big food companies, you know, all the names that we all grew up on, they do it differently in other countries. They don't use these same ingredients. You know, they label things or they just totally opt out of all this artificial stuff. Yep. And so 
it's not like we needed them to reinvent the wheel. We just needed them to basically bring those same products home to American families. So that was when I really, you know, that was just that double standard. I just thought it's not okay. You know, not when Mm -hmm. our families are dealing with cancer and food allergies and autism and all these things the way that we are, that's not okay. And so that's when I really had to figure out a way to make some noise around that in an effective way to try to create this change. Wow. Okay. So I'm actually going back to when you first, when you're young. Okay. First of all, four kids in five years. Yeah. That's crazy. Uh, was that like a, that was a life decision. Yeah. We always wanted four. We'd had our third in less than three years and truly like we kind of hit a wall and we were like, I don't know if we can keep going. And then, um, we'd always planned for, you know, and then it just, you know, after a couple of years, we were both like, okay, we, that it'll be complete. We just knew we had to go for that fourth child and she changed the world. You know, she really did she change did. the world. She did. And we didn't eat, you know, we were just a typical family. I mean, I joke, I fed the kids Lego my Eggo waffles and blue yogurt. Mm. I was not a foodie. Even living in Boulder, I was not a foodie. Mm-hmm. And I was a crazy busy mom, like most moms. And I didn't want anybody telling me what to feed my kids. And, you know, you had those friends who were like total perfectionists about their food. And I just thought, I cannot do that. There's and they no would way. bring it everywhere. They yeah. Had it. And it just, you know, I couldn't do it. And I, so I just, I, I, I didn't want to hear this for a really long time. And I had plenty of really smart people try to tell me. And then, you know, as our, as the diagnosis hit, one of our boys had really struggled with a lot of health, a lot of health issues. And as Tori's food allergies hit, you know, we were just trying to sort of clean up our food in our kitchen because we didn't know what was in it. You know, all of a sudden I'm reading these labels and I'm like, well, where is egg hidden in this? And there was tons of processed foods and they have different names and so we just started to eat less processed food initially, mm. which is, that's, that's a huge. good move, you know? And then as we started to learn more about the food and the way that it's produced and, you know, how intensive some of the agricultural practices can be, I just thought, like, this isn't good for any of us. Mm-hmm. And so we slowly started to make the shift. And, you know, my husband's a finance guy too. And I thought, you know, you, you, nobody wants to be told you have to go buy all organic and chop at Whole Foods and hand over your entire paycheck, you know, and being married to a finance person, Mm -hmm. I thought like, that's just not going to fly, you know? And so for us, we just started slowly by doing one thing. And it was just, you know, let's get the artificial colors out because they're not used in kids' foods because of their link to hyperactivity. So, you know, as a mom of four, I was like, well, I got to like dial that down, you know? Mm -hmm. And just there were little things that were really empowering that we were able to start to introduce and do as a family. So it was going from blue yogurt to white, you know, it was going from that fluorescent mac and cheese to a, a just noodles mm. that we put butter on or grated cheese on, yep. you know, and it was just little simple steps that you could do in any grocery store anywhere in the country. And that, that approach to me was so important because I thought this solution has to be affordable and accessible to everybody true. or else it's not really a solution. That's true. And, you know, even going back to when you first diagnosed that allergy outbreak, I think there's a lot of moms probably listening who are like, I live in fear of my kid having an outbreak. What did that even look like? Oh, I mean, it is it is absolutely terrifying. And until you live it, you can't possibly understand the fear that runs through your entire system. She had been sitting at the breakfast in our high chair at the breakfast table and we'd had scrambled eggs and she just got fussy and it was in the morning so I thought I'll just put her down for a morning nap and you know with our fourth child I mean usually you put her down for a nap and you just kind of let her sleep Mm -hmm. and for some reason that morning 
I went in to check on her and her face was swollen shut and it was just red. And I thought at the time that maybe one of the others had sprayed something in her face or, you know, something had gotten into her face. And I asked them and they just were so blank stares, like that honest, like, I don't know what you're talking about, mom. Look, and <laughs> I like that you blame the other kids first. <laughs> I know, I know. I mean, so, but it was like, you know, I just, I was so foreign mm-hmm. to food allergies. It yeah. just would never cross my mind that food could hurt a child that much. And so we raised her to the emergency room and that's when she said, you know, this is a food allergy. And that like gripping fear of seeing your child suffer like that. And then the next thought as a mother is, oh my God, how am I going to feed this child if she's allergic to food? And then my next thought was she's got these three older siblings who would never mean to do something bad, but what if they accidentally Mm -hmm. do something? Bite a banana bread or whatever. And so, you know, it, um, my, my mind just was racing. And I think because of this numbers background, That's why I immediately kind of, as soon as we got everything under control, I was like, I just want to see the data. I want the numbers to tell me the story of what's happening. And as I started to kind of extract those numbers from the CDC and the president's cancer panel and all these different sources, the story it told was terrible, Mm -hmm. you know? And it's like, you know, now, I mean, as moms, we know, like we talk to our friends and you know, the friend whose child has just been diagnosed with a peanut allergy or whose child has just been diagnosed with diabetes or or autism. It's like, we all know that. And then, you know, the friends who have a brother or a parent that's dealing with cancer. And it's like, it's become part of our everyday talking Mm -hmm. about these different conditions. And if you think about when we were kids, it wasn't, you know, and so it's part of our new normal, you know, dealing with all of these conditions. And I think we see the food industry responding to that. You see the growth in organic, you see the growth in gluten-free, you see the growth in companies like Freebie Foods that are, you know, suddenly making foods without all these top eight mm-hmm. allergens. And so, mm-hmm. you know, the, the market is rising up to meet that demand, but it's still like, how do we as a society come together and support each other as this transition happens? Because it's happening right now to our generation of parents. Yeah, that's true. And uh, okay, so tell us, um, you've mentioned a few things. I love this idea of one thing at a time. Yeah, it has to be. And so like for anyone listening who's like, I, I need to then go through and sh- look at my fridge and my pantry. So by the way, I had Robin take a look at my fridge and pantry and said, what's going on here that I need to get rid of? And she kind of said, well, you're actually doing okay. There were a few things, right? Yeah. So, you know, I mean, you were doing great. And when we, when I was first unearthing all this and learning about how we allow these artificial dyes linked to hyperactivity that other countries say don't put it in kids' foods. So mm-hmm. even things like M&Ms and Skittles aren't made with artificial colors overseas because of the link to hyperactivity. So it's like, ugh, why is this so much harder for us? Have, yeah, I, I want crazy. natural Skittles. And, you know, <laughs> it's like them okay, everybody right? loves them. They don't taste <laughs> funky. You know, everything's still good. But um, so things like artificial dyes. There are things like artificial growth hormones that we use in our dairy that aren't allowed in other countries. And I'm just thinking like, you know, I get it. Mm-hmm. This is driving profitability. It's totally number crunching stuff. But let's step back and what is all this doing in combination to our families? You know, right. and it's that moment of like, I remember opening the cupboards in the kitchen and opening the fridge and just thinking, oh my goodness, this isn't everything. It's in everything in my kitchen. You had to throw it all out. Well, and I couldn't, you no. know, and it's like, I'm like, where do I start? I mean, I guess I could have, but I'm married to this finance guy. And I just thought like, I can't purge everything out. Like, you know, and the kids will do mutiny at the kitchen table. Oh, if yeah, regular stuff doesn't show up, you know, and like, mm-hmm. I get it. We have four kids and a couple of them are picky eaters. And they're and- still alive. Yeah. So they've been surviving on this stuff, but you know, the long-term consequences. Yeah, and not right. Be good. So, so I remember looking in the cupboard and, 
I was a total Costco mom. And at the time, you know, it was before Costco. Costco now is awesome. Like, they're yeah. so on board with yep. moms today, and they do such a great job with organic. But this was 10 years ago. And so, you know, when I first talking about this, everybody's like, like, my, my parents in Texas were like, you've just lived in Boulder too long. You know, like, they really thought that I just sort of had too much of this Kool-Aid here, and I was totally just all in. But I'm like, no, 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 no. Natural Kool-Aid. You know, so <laughs> it was, what do, where do I start? And for us, you know, we, we got rid of that blue yogurt, and we went to white yogurt, and I let the kids put sprinkles on it, you know, so that mm-hmm. whatever was fun to them in that blue yogurt, you know, there was still sort of that kidness, I guess, which now even in hindsight, it's like, wow, that's a whole that's a whole nother discussion around marketing foods to kids. Well, it's true. Like, how old were your kids when this was going on? They were one, three, four, and five. Oh, geez. So little. And there, there were some picky eaters in there? Oh, totally. You know, yeah. and so, you know, I had a kid that just lived on, like, yogurt and bagels at the time. And um, <laughs> and so, you know, he he was the one where I was like, this kid's going to flip out. Like, it'll be mutiny if we just yeah. change everything. And so, you know, it was fluorescent mac and cheese, and we, we kind of started to wean the powder off of that thing, and then we, you know, mixed it with olive oil or butter. You know, we just integrated these changes in a super slow pace, and I thought about it as mm. a mom where it's like, you don't potty train them overnight, you know, you don't wean them from the sippy cup overnight. As a child is making changes, that's a process, and so I gave myself permission to go at it that same way. And um, there were some things that just sort of jumped out. And one was uh, the use of genetically engineered ingredients in the U.S. food supply, which started in the mid-1990s. And we were one of the only developed countries that had put all this stuff into our food without labels. And as I studied that business model, you know, it's a super smart business model for a chemical company. And it was a company that was selling Roundup. They decided to genetically engineer seeds that are corn seeds, soy seeds, canola seeds, so that it could withstand more Roundup. So it makes sense because it's helping them sell more of their weed killer. And that's why countries were like, you know what? We don't know what the long-term effect of this is going to be. So let's put labels on these so parents and pregnant Mm -hmm. moms and people with cancer can know. And here in the U.S., it was just blindly introduced into the food system. And that, to me, felt so Mm un-American. And so, you know, I thought, like, this... It's capitalist. Yeah, Yeah. we have to have this conversation. Mm -hmm. And so that was a conversation that I was a big catalyst on, you know, starting 10 years ago. And there were definitely people that did not want me talking about it. And, you know, definitely big, huge multinational companies that did not want me talking about it. And what was fascinating is that every time I ran into my own fear and wanted to just shut down, it was like some door would open and in would walk some person who was there to sort of take me to the next level. And they were people that I had such enormous respect for, you know, whether it was a scientist or somebody who had been a world-recognized economist, you know, another was a, a global advertising guy, you know. And as they started to come into this and become part of the team, the fear started to diminish. And I think about these two competing muscles we have in our heads, and one is fear, And for most of us, for whatever reason, fear starts to be the really dominant muscle and it gets really strong Mm -hmm. and it keeps you from doing these things that you may really want to try. And courage is the other muscle. And just like fear, you can exercise it. And what I started to find was that the more that I exercised that courage muscle, the stronger it got and the easier it was to then continue to exercise it. And so, you know, you, you start to weaken the fear muscle and the courage muscle starts to strengthen. And As that started to happen, amazing shifts 
started to happen in the work. And the team just opened wide. And so when I was asked to do the TED Talk, I mean, that, that fear muscle was so strong. And, you know, I had to fight it with everything I was to get through to take the stage and stand there by myself and deliver this thing. And what was the most fascinating after that, and I mean, I was terrified. When that thing posted publicly online, I was just like, I have no idea what's going to happen. And we watched it start to tick up and just like escalate with the number of views and the way people started to share it. And it started to be translated into all these different languages. And within a couple months, I heard from a CEO inside of Nestle. Oh. And Nestle, like we studied them in business school, like they don't have the greatest reputation for ethics, you know? <laughs> and so, you know, people that were here were like, you're crazy. You can't talk to Nestle. I mean, they're the worst, you know? And I thought, how can we change the conversation if we don't even sit down at the same table? So I had to go and sit down and take this invitation from Nestle. So I fly out there and it was a dinner and the division was Hot Pockets and Lean Cuisine. Yeah. So, you know, we're making these things. You very, I've got some organic type of Hot Pockets in there. But so we're making these things. These are not organic. These oh, are just like, you know, the things that are just cheap uh-huh. and accessible and filled with a lot of artificial stuff. Yep. So what we did that night was we made them from scratch, from these beautiful ingredients. And I thought... It's interesting. I mean, the team knows how to do it, you know, so that's not translating. And it wasn't translating into the product on the shelf. Mm. And so I was scheduled to speak right after the senior marketing director from McDonald's. And, you know, it was fascinating to listen to her and understand the power of these corporations. And she talked about how McDonald's, when they had decided to launch their smoothies, they took out like a quarter of the world's blueberry supply in the first purchase, you know? And so you realize the scale of these companies. And I thought if we got them doing the right thing, that change would be so foundational and so fundamental to fixing the food system. And that's when I realized, you know, that there was a huge opportunity to educate these Mm. bigger players. Yeah. And so I spent a couple of days with that Nestle team. The first day they were totally silent. And then the second day they really opened up about, you know, how they felt personally about the products that they were representing and their sales were in the tank. And, you know, I thought if you're not proud of what you're doing, that comes through in every aspect of your business. Mm -hmm. So how do you create a business that you want to be proud of, that you want to celebrate? And I think that's what we've seen in the last five or six years of these companies are saying where they may have tried to dismiss it or shoot the messenger as some of them did, you know, when I first came on the scene. Now inside what I find are these parents that are a lot like us Mm -hmm. and they understand because they've lost a parent to cancer or they have a child with food allergies or autism and they're trying to figure out how to do the right thing. And what I've seen in the work over and over and over is that courage is so contagious and that if you come from that place of we can do this together, you know, we have to do this Mm -hmm. together. This has to be this amazing team. This is our generation's human rights movement. I fully believe it is our generation's movement to just clean the food supply back out and just build out a smarter food system because we have to. You know, mm-hmm. you look at the health of our families and it's like, we have to. We can't we can't get to one in one men with cancer. We cannot afford to get to that place. And my dad was in the US Army, and it's like you look at that data, and right now, seven out of ten young people don't qualify to serve in our military. 
So it's like, how do we defend our country? Why? What's wrong? A lot of it is um, drug prescription drug use. So prescription drug use for things like diabetes, for ADHD, for food mm-hmm. allergies. And it's like, you can't send someone on the battlefield if they also require the asthma inhaler, the insulin pump, and the EpiPen. Yeah. So sure. it's keeping a lot of the kids out. Obesity mm-hmm. is another thing that's um, keeping a lot of these kids out. And you have these generals inside the military now that are saying, you know, we have a problem. So, you know, I think about health as mm-hmm. one of the greatest ways to defend our country, to, to defend our economy, you know, to defend our military. And you hear a little bit about it from the political leaders. But what I've seen in, the, in this first 10 years of this work is that the grassroots movement here is so powerful and so effective. And the mother is absolutely a beacon because she's going into that grocery store and she's not trying to make a political statement. She is just looking to buy something that's safe for her kid. It's true. So if her kid gets all hyped out on artificial dyes, she's going to avoid them. Or if her kid gets, you know, total stomach aches because of gluten, she's going to avoid it. And she's navigating that grocery store in a really different way than our moms did. You know, our moms didn't have to worry about all these conditions when they were shopping for us. And what's fascinating to me is that the grocery stores really are leading on this. You know, they see what she wants and they see that the food industry has been slow to respond. And so the grocery stores are saying, hey, we'll launch a private label. And I think Kroger, King Super is the greatest example of that with their simple truth line. They're just like, we'll get hundreds of additives out. We'll give you Simple Truth Organic, which is at a much more affordable price point, and we know that's what you want. And so, you know, we're starting to see this incredible growth in the grocery stores themselves, you know, for food that our families really want. Mm -hmm. It's true. And I think um, I love all these messages, by the way, because first of all, you're an unintentional hero. Like you did not choose this path. It's Mm -hmm. choosing you. And what's cool is you're sort of an unintimidating person. You walk into a room, people aren't expecting this powerful message to come from you. And I think that makes it even more powerful because you're not bullying your way in. No. And what's crazy is, was it the right brain that likes data or the left brain? I forget yeah, I mean, way. it's both sides working here because I think uh-huh. you know, it requires a ton of creativity to give yourself permission to say, okay, Actually, in front of us is this totally wide open blank page that we get to design a better food system on. I mean, what could be more fun Mm -hmm. for a generation? I just think like that is awesome. And you see the most amazing things happen. You see these cool food trucks showing up. You see all these farmer's markets. And it's not just in Boulder. Like farmer's markets are exploding. You see this incredible growth inside these grocery stores. You see all these food companies starting up. You see moms starting baby food companies. You see moms starting you know, snack companies and allergen-free companies and dads are getting in on the game. And it's just, to me, like, that's fun. So, you know, you have so much information. I think people listening would like a little education too. Like what's more important? Organic. What do we look for? What does natural mean? What's non-GMO? Like what are we supposed to look for? And then we have some kind of I think um, we perception that eating healthy is really expensive. So right. maybe you can kind of talk through some of that. So on my website, robinobrien.com is one of my TED Talks. And in that, it's, you know, it's 18 minutes, which sounds like a long time, but I've been told it goes really fast. It's an awesome talk. And so <laughs> you, you have know, to watch it. In that, in that talk, I talk about a lot of these things. And I talk about this word organic, which when everybody was telling me to organic, I was like, that's nice. You know, that's lifestyle, rich and famous or some mm-hmm. hippie thing, or, you know, it's like, 
some boulder thing. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't even a boulder. <laughs> Do you have thing. to grow it in your garden? You like, know, and so as I, I thought, okay, so what is organic and why the number cruncher in me wanted to know why it was so much more expensive. And as I looked at our food system, the way we grow food right now requires a lot of chemicals. And that chemically intensive operating system is the one that all of our tax dollars support. And so it, and farmers get insurance programs, they get marketing support. So you think about a business, you know, they've got insurance around that business, they've got marketing around that business, they get all these discounts around that business. So they're gravitating towards mm-hmm. that business. That business is 100% dependent on chemicals and things like Roundup. And so as I was looking at that, I'm like, okay, Roundup, weed killer, is what we're told not to put under the kitchen sink. We're told to keep that out of the reach of our kids. And yet these genetically engineered crops are being routinely sprayed with this stuff. So it's in our fridge and on our table, but not under our sink. Right. And so, you know, I thought like if that that was a bottle of like salad dressing and it said Roundup on it, you're not going to like sprinkle it across your salad, but that's what's (laughs) happened to our food. And so, you know, as I was learning that and learning that 64 countries were labeling these GMOs because of these concerns and then to learn that the World Health Organization, which is not some crazy activist group, it's the World Health Organization, said that this this ingredient in Roundup was a probable carcinogen. You know, and you get back to the one in two and one in three Mm -hmm. women with cancer and you're like, okay, how do I navigate that? So all of a sudden I'm looking at this word organic and realize that by law, it legally means that the food is produced without these genetically engineered ingredients. By law, it means that Roundup is not allowed to be used. By law, it means that artificial colors are not allowed to be used. Artificial growth hormones are not allowed to be used. So it was this legal standard on this higher quality food. And all of a sudden I'm thinking, well, so why are our tax dollars supporting this chemically intensive thing? And yet the organic food production is the one that's more expensive. And if when we're sending in our taxes, if we got to check a box, wouldn't we rather check the box and say, let's make organic more affordable to more people. And we haven't been given that choice. But what I think is awesome about capitalism is that if there's a vacuum like that, the market tends to move in. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the first to move into that space was Whole Foods. And that was definitely at a premium. What they had to do was then turn around and educate a country about the value of organic. And they did an amazing job with that. And then companies like Kroger saw the category starting to explode and said, well, our consumer wants that too. And so then they launched their Simple Truth organic line. And that Simple Truth line went from zero to a billion in revenue in a two-year period. So it's like, it's not just the elite that Mm -hmm. were shopping at Whole Foods. Mm -hmm. These are moms across the country and parents across the country that wanted this food that was free from all this junk. So, you know, organic by law means that it's free from all of this artificial stuff. And one of the reasons I know I'm going to be doing this for a long time is because those price points have to keep coming down. You know, that 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 needs to be the affordable choice. Right now, organic's growing at like 14% a year. Less than 1% of our farmland is organic. And so right now, you know, for the demand for organic, we've got to get it from other countries. And that's crazy to me. That and is so crazy. Costco, mm-hmm. you know, Costco CEO just recently said, we don't have enough organic to meet the demand that our consumers have. So that CEO told his investors, they are literally working with their farmers to convert the farmland. And that is, to me, is just awesome. You know, it's like amazing. That's supply chain at its best. Totally. And I think we're starting to see that, you know, from companies like Applegate that make, you know, cleaner Mm -hmm. organic meat. Mm -hmm. You start to see it. General Mills even has said they're going to commit, 
to doubling organic. And so the, the market is really cool. And I think the role of the consumer in this is so important. And I can't emphasize that enough because these companies are listening and they know she's right. You know, they know that mm-hmm. if this is what she wants, you give the consumer what she wants. And yep. so that shift is starting to happen. You know, I have a question. This is a, a myth and maybe it's not a myth. They, the, the idea has been presented that girls are maturing at an earlier age than they were before. And that's possibly due to hormones and things like that. So we talked a lot about pesticides and, mm-hmm. you know, crap they put on the food that is grown. What about the food that's in animals? And yeah. what's your take on yeah. you know, plant-based eating versus, you know, that's a really good question. There definitely are studies that have come out. Um, the Journal of the American Medical Association, the pediatric journals are reporting about early onset puberty in these girls. Um, and if you look at the added hormones in our dairy primarily and in our meat, no long-term studies have been done. So okay. we don't know what those added mm-hmm. hormones are doing to boys. Mm-hmm. We don't know what those added hormones are doing to girls. And so right now, all anyone can do is speculate. But what other countries have done have said, hey, we're not going to speculate. We're going to exercise precaution, and we're not going to allow the added hormone in our dairy. And so the U.S. was the only developed country that allowed that added growth hormone in the dairy. And so we haven't exercised the precaution. And what we're seeing is the mom is saying, I'm going to do it. I will exercise that precaution. I'd rather get milk that is RBGH free. Mm -hmm. RBGH free. So that I'm avoiding that artificial growth hormone. And, you know, as somebody who grew up in Texas, like I never thought for once to question meat, Mm -hmm. you know, but as I was learning about genetically engineered ingredients, these GMOs are primarily grown to feed livestock. So, you know, the livestock's now eating this corn that's been genetically engineered to withstand big doses of Roundup. And 80% of our antibiotics in the U.S. are fed to livestock. So, you know, all it's of a sudden I'm thinking, blowing. I know, I'm thinking like, wait, do we want to be eating this meat? And should we be eating this much meat? And yeah. it felt radical to eat less meat as a Texan, you know? I mean, that was just challenged, like, It's like embarrassing. Yeah. Like, if you walk in a restaurant where you grew up and you're like, I'm a vegan. You're, like, embarrassed, you know? How do, well, you, how so, do you even say that out loud? And so, you know, for us, it was like, you know, with four kids and all different kind of dietary needs and different builds, you know, all four kids have different builds and so we kind of went with this family style where I would present the food, you know, and people could sort of choose what they needed. And I've always been really mindful of whatever's in the house is what I can control. And so I want to make sure that those are good, clean choices. Because now with two in high school and two in middle school, I mean, they're out with their friends eating who knows what, if that's what they feel like. And mm-hmm. I was mindful of all of it because I didn't want to create eating disorders in the kids. I didn't want them Mm-mm. to have this messed up relationship with food. I wanted them to see food as this fuel that could help them live a great life. You know, it could help them have great skin and sleep well and do well in their sports and do well, you know, with their academic stuff. And so I didn't want it to be this negative relationship. So I've always kind of had this 80-20 rule. So they had the flexibility to kind of do what they wanted to do. But on the meat thing, we did. I mean, the more that I started learning about it, the more important it was to me that when we did eat meat, that it was clean, Mm -hmm. you know? And thankfully, that movement is happening. And it's happening across, like, food companies and fast food companies that you would never have expected. Yep. They're just really getting with the program fast, which is great. And that makes all of our lives easier and better. Yep. But um, yeah, the move towards more plants and less meat is, it's an incredible move. And I've seen it around the country. I mean, you see it around the world. 
Um, I have a friend who's an MD down in Texas, and he's written a book called Proteinaholic, which is, is an incredible resource. Yeah, we, I need to check that one out. Yeah, it's such a good resource, and he grew up, you know, eating meat with every meal and snack like I did, and he revisited a lot of that. And I do think different body types and different blood types need different things, but the more you know, the better you can make decisions mm-hmm. and choices. And True. so, you know, it's, again, to be able to do that. But I think it can be really overwhelming. So to me, the really important takeaway is you can do one thing, pick one thing. If you want to get rid of that artificial growth hormone, you know, get organic dairy or look for milk that's RBGH free. Mm -hmm. If you want to avoid GMOs, now you can look for the little symbol that says non-GMO project verified or something that's USDA organic because by law it's not allowed. So it's like, you know, you pick the thing that you care about the most Mm -hmm. and start there. And just again, like you're teaching the kid to ride a bike, give yourself permission to sort of do it at a pace that you really can sustain. And it's, you know, I mean, we're in this for the long haul. This is a marathon. It's not a sprint. So you've got to do it in a way that's I get that analogy. (laughs) So, okay, so what you're doing today, all kinds of stuff. I am going to encourage everyone to go check out your book, The Unhealthy Truth. Amazing. We should give, let's, um, give, let's give some away to your listeners. Let's we're do doing it. Okay. Done. Okay, I'll figure out a little thing. So go to the show notes when you listen to this podcast, and there'll be a place that you can uh, comment, and we'll do, we'll do some giveaways. That'll be awesome. Um, and there's a place on your website where people can interact with you, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we get... The most amazing feedback on the website at robinobrien.com. I've heard from, well, just this morning, I mean, I had emails from food industry executives. I hear from farmers. I hear from nurses. I hear from doctors. I hear from people around the world. And it's really, it truly is the most extraordinary movement that so many people want to and can be part of. Um, You can host movie nights at your church. You can host, you know, speakers at your child's school. You can do book clubs. You can do, you know, movie nights with friends. There's so many fun, funny, and then also really scary, you know, movies around the food supply. And I think there's so many ways that you can get involved. And so it's like kind of pick the thing you're passionate about and find the friends that are passionate too. And, you know, people may still be a little bit in the closet on the fact that they're thinking all these things, but again, courage is so contagious. And when you step forward and you say, Hey, I've been thinking about this, or I'm worried because I have a kid with food allergies. I can promise somebody's going to step up beside you. I love this. Courage is contagious. So we're going to direct you to robinobrien.com, right? Definitely. Yeah. And share your stories and, and, uh, she'll help continue, you know, just be a force that helps continue to get the word out. And what I'm kind of hearing from you is it's about education because once you know what's going on with your food, how can you really dispute what it's doing to your body? Well, and I think for me, the double standard is just so in your face and it doesn't matter if I'm talking mm-hmm. to farmers that are growing GMOs or a room full of moms in Dallas or, you know, corporate executives in Minneapolis. When you learn about that double standard, it's not right. And these food companies already know how to formulate and make their products, whether it's Milky Way bars or Skittles or M&Ms or granola, whatever they're making, they make it without all this artificial stuff overseas. So it's just time for them to do that here. I cannot believe that the U.S. is backwards in, in this industry. We are not leading You know, I mean, in terms of shareholder returns, they were for a long time, (laughs) you know, but what's happened now is the bottom fell out. Yeah. And the consumer literally 
can't eat a lot of these old foods from the 20th century. And so you see these brands like Annie's and Stonyfield kind of step in and say, we get you. We're not even here to debate it. We know that you want food that doesn't have the junk in it. And we're here to meet that need. And I think Annie's is the greatest example because it was started by a mom. Mm -hmm. You know, she had these two little girls and she just wanted to make an easy bowl of mac and cheese that didn't have all that junk in it. Yep. And, you know, now you look at that company and it's everywhere. I know. I know. And we're lucky in Boulder because we have a huge food movement. Mm -hmm. Good Lord. Well, we have rocked it today. I mean, we are over our 5K mark. So the podcast is called Run This World, and it's based loosely on the 5K average time in the country. So people listening can listen while they're out on their little run for the week. Isn't that cool? Um, And by the way, we didn't even get into your fitness regime, but you look awesome and your skin looks awesome. So you're doing something right. Oh, thank you. (laughs) I'd like to end every podcast by asking our guest if you could give people one nugget one special thing that will help them run their world in a bigger and better way, what would it be? It just gave me the biggest chills. Um, I would say, believe in your ability to create change. Every single one of us is on this planet for a reason, and we each have our very own unique skills and our very own unique talents. No two of us are the same. And when you leverage those unique skills and your unique talents with what you're passionate about, you will create change. And if you believe in that, you will absolutely create change. So don't let that fear muscle get the most of you. Exercise that courage muscle and just go for it. And I hold this vision in my head of being like this. We'll be, we'll do this. When we're in our 80s, we'll get back together and we'll have these silver ponytails. <laughs> and we're going to be able to tell this story about how we clean up our food system. And I truly think it's the work of our generation. And I'm just so thrilled to be part of it. Robin. You're so awesome. We need to hang out more. I know. I thought we were the same thing. <laughs> Thanks for coming in today. It was really fun. It was great. All right, everybody, over and out. Wow. That was an eye-opening episode with Robin. I know that I personally will be paying much more attention to the foods I choose to eat. If you want to learn more, go to robinobrien.com and check out her book, The Unhealthy Truth. And for a chance to win a book, which she so graciously offered, simply go to nicoledeboom.com, get on the show notes for Robin's episode, write a comment about why you want her book, and we will choose some winners. I hope you enjoyed the show today. If you did, please share it with a friend, leave me a comment, follow me on Facebook and Instagram. I want to hear your thoughts. I want your feedback, any suggestions you have for future guests. All right, folks, you know what time it is. It's time to get out there and run this world. Have a great weekend, and I'll see you next week.